Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Whispers. The track is Morbid Vision. This is off of Narak Bon Din. Hopefully I got that right. Yes, this band is from Thailand. Recently, some YouTube videos got out of these guys whooping some fucking ass. And then we go back to the old faithful No Echo. And of course, they were onto this band over a year ago. And uh, something that's been interesting about the kind of things that I usually extol the either virtues or shit all over it is that there's a lot of these small labels that just put out stuff on Bandcamp and it's hard to find. Or maybe if you're a Bandcamper or a SoundCloud person or a blogger, you're hip to all this shit because you basically just pay attention to stuff that comes out on the internet. For me, it's always been hard blending the world of the internet with the world of the real. I could listen to a band over the internet, but if I don't see them live, recordings and shit don't really give me any kind of reference to what kind of band I'm dealing with. However, seeing the video, seeing this the shit in them live, I'm always amazed of the worldwide reach of hardcore and to see a band in Thailand and kids fucking going off always gets me excited. You know, in America, we're lucky to have everything that we have to the point where we become spoiled brats with it. But to see kids in like American hardcore merch, spin kicking and fucking up their friends to music that I know I would have gone off on myself. It's cool to see a kinship with people across the world. Make sure not only do you check out Whispers on the TIHC podcast links, but you continue to support No Echo because Carlos is one of these people who universally uses his quote-unquote platform to promote everybody unilaterally for the betterment and promotion independently of some of the more refined and higher-class pinky-up periodicals and note and such magazines, you know? Carlos has been a hardcore punk guy as long as, you know, we can remember. He's been in some awesome bands. I'd love to get him on the show one day. But what No Echo does is give bands like Whispers and a ton of bands the opportunity to, you know, get a little bit further along the way. And I should say that it's not that I have a problem with a record label releasing shit through Bandcamp and bands using the internet because it's the way, it's the currency of our times. It's the way things move quickest. But when you're a kid who entire opinion resides only in what you know from what you've read on the internet, you're really missing an entire perspective. And in fact, in reading, and I know tweet, I know you can't take Twitter seriously, and I know tweets sometimes are written just to get people to interact with, and um, we'll get into this um, in a bit. But with the FYA release of their lineup. A tweet that kind of had some numbers said, this will be the first time Bulldoze is playing with kids with pink hair in a crowd. And it's like, my man, what the fuck do you think the 1980s were? Or the 1990s. But in the time when Bulldoze was playing, 90% of the hardcore scene knew what Manic Panic was because there was people of every single color. Orange, blue, purple, pink. I mean, that was like really a 90s thing in general beyond hardcore punk, but just in general in pop culture and in underground culture with people with colored hair. So unfortunately, as much as your tweet did numbers, it's historically inaccurate. 
Welcome to this awkward podcast, guys. Sorry, off on a little tangent, had a little coffee. Uh, had planned to go ahead and sit down with Bob and do another FYA special, but quickly I wanted to get this one out. We got to get our time right and we'll really go into detail. But it is FYA season and a couple hours from when this gets released, this motherfucker goes on sale. And uh, all I'm saying to you is if you don't go to this or you at least think this is badass, we have nothing in common. FYA, January 7th, 8th, and 9th at the Glacier JCC in Tampa, Florida. Let me explain this to you. My man has been doing this in Florida while living in Philadelphia for, I think, the first three or four he lived in Florida. He left us and he came back. But then the, the actually might have been just the first three. And then the, the following six, he's lived up here and done this. It is the way we start off our year. It's sunny, fucking tons of great food. The venue is the closest you can come to, like a tattoo convention meets Comic-Con. Carpeted floors, we mosh. No bullshit. Air conditioning. Uh, every, uh, last year, I came home from FYA, and it was 15 degrees in Philadelphia. I was so fucking miserable, I spent the money on an Uber because I didn't want to take SEPTA home from the train and have to deal with how fucking cold it was. So, Bob, again, doing the Lord's work, starting Hardcore's year off perfect with an amazing Hardcore Fest. Here we go. Headliner. Life of Agony. Jesus Christ. All the times we try to get these motherfuckers. I'm so proud of Bob for getting Life Agony on board. They're going to pull out all the stops. And when they are at their best, they're at their very best. So don't miss out. Cold World. PA's finest. Since Dan has been a complete UK resident, it's been really hard for him to play shows in the summertime. Which is why you really only see Cold World in the fall or winter. He has family obligations in the UK. Fiddlehead. The band keeps keeps blowing up and blowing up. Drain. You already know about Drain. That's going to be fucking sick. And here's it is. Bulldoze. Bulldoze is back. Kev one in the mix. Going to have him on the show. It's going to be great. And yes, they played in front of pink hair people. No pressure. You know, imagine being in a huge punk band. Having money. People know you across the world. And you missed what it was like to just be in a band. No management, no booking agents, everything done at the surface level from the band. Now, it needs to be said that your band has to be pretty fucking good, write the right songs, know the right people, have the social intelligence to know, and the insight to know who to go to do shows with, who's the band to be playing. All of this is why No Pressure is fucking killing it. Um, you got to see them. Booked them twice now. Absolutely fantastic shows. Incredible band. Crown of Thorns. Isaac in Florida. That alone could be its own thing. Him down at Ybor City or at the castle. Oh, we're going to have a blast. Tsunami. Jesus Christ. Wearing my Tsunami benefit shirt right now. Um, killer band. Can't wait to see them there again. Pain of Truth. 2022 might be the year of Pain of Truth. Jesus Christ. Our good friends, War Hungry, are back. Mind Force. Jesus Christ, I love that new Mind Force track. 200 Stab Wounds, Adrian, Age of Apocalypse, Anxious, Buried Dreams, The Chisel. Enough said. 
Chemical Facts, Contention, Criminal Instinct, Hosiah, Dead Last, Echo Chamber, End It, Envision, Field of Flames, Fool's Game, Gridiron, Killing Pace, King Nine, Live It Down, Magnitude, Never Again, New World, Mo- New World Man, Raw Brigade, Seat of Pain, Simulacre, State of Pride, Statement of Pride, and Wreckage. They're on sale today. Do not miss it. At FYA Fest on Instagram and Twitter. Last year, the tickets sold quick. I hope that these sell just as quick. This That was just the band's in alphabetical order. We're going to get Bob on. We're going to do the right thing with this. But I just wanted to go ahead and just say, if you don't go to this fucking thing, you're missing out. There's going to be one for the fucking, uh, for the record books. Now, having said what I said earlier, it's important that you understand that the internet is what the internet does. It always has and always will. There will be opinions that we agree with and opinions that we absolutely disagree with. Because it is the language of our times, or I should say it's the vehicle for most of our conversations, not the language of our times, that it's constantly referenced in podcasts, especially in this one, what's said on the internet. You'll probably do a whole podcast just on what's said on the internet or what was posted. And I think entire podcasts are based around that, to be honest. But for me, when it comes to hardcore, you know, I, I take a jab at the pink hair thing. But it shows an ignorance. It shows a lack of understanding of overall not even understanding what was before. And I get it. You're young. The younger you are, the less you understand of the world. But there's also this thing where this know-it-all moment. Like, well, it's happening now, so I obviously know everything that's going on. It's just like this surety of mind where you're really not qualified to just guaranteed know everything, so to speak. And uh kind of blends into what I've been reading a lot in regards to this Kentucky Irate Festival. The background, pretty simple. Some festival that popped up in Louisville, Kentucky. And um, called Kentucky Irate Festival. And, you know, it's got the bells and whistles of all the metal trappings that people would call metalcore, but I don't like that word. Just a bunch of metal bands. Some hardcore stuff, Madball's on it. And uh, when it came out, I don't know. I mean, the bands and shit were sharing it. It got some pop on social media. People weren't jumping up and down like for This Is Hardcore or Sound of Fury or FYA or LDB because, you know, it's not really that kind of world, part one. And then part two, because it's brand new. You know, like even the Decibel stuff and other things, you know, Psycho Las Vegas, all the festivals, they kind of have a rollout where the built-in fan base is already on board and already pushing it. And so when this thing popped, there really wasn't this clamor. This like thousands of shares, but people were interested. And uh, I didn't really take too much of them. I kind of, oh, that's weird. And I, I mean, there is a short amount of people in the entire country that do these kind of hardcore fests. The guy Mike Zemer down in Texas, he just basically puts on different goofball festivals, Monster Bash and the other thing in Texas. And, like, there's people that, like, professionally work with companies and sponsors, and they that, that's what all they do is they just do fests. But not knowing this Kentucky thing and not really caring about 90% of the bill, it didn't really affect me. But then in the last couple of weeks, I've seen people, like, spontaneously start trashing it. 
and making fun of it. And, you know, hey, I'm, I'm all about seeing pro-core nonsense fall on its face. However, and this is a big however, you know, let's say the roles are reversed and Kentucky Irate Festival was a giant success and everybody went. A lot of the people taking the shots would be clamoring for their attempt to be on it and be a part of it the following year. And what that says to me is that everybody's looking to be on the winning team and they're also always ready to punch you on the way down. And um, in thinking of Kentucky and Kentucky Fests, let's get an ode to Crazy Fest, which came out of Louisville in 1998. And it was run by the same people that give you uh, initial records. And um, initial records really was an outstanding part of the indie rock underground emo scene. And it started in 1992. I mean, they put out Fallen Forward, Boys That's Fire, Ink and Dagger. And a lot of Crazy Fest was basically centered around it. And Andy Rich had done a really good job of centering an entire festival with some, you know, collective ideas. And and honestly, Crazy Fest is, to me, one of the uh, the first hardcore fests that I was cognizant of. And um, I guess there was some initial pop because they never stopped. You know, they went on from 98 to 2003 which is a high watermark for the underground, which may not be understood, but like, you know, Earth Crisis and Madball were playing shows in the East Coast to anywhere between 1,000 to 1,200 people at times. And then by 2003, with the American Nightmare Converge, you know, the early 2000s, Jesus Christ, those crowds sometimes even got bigger. Now, you know, it was... Uh, a thing that they put together, I, I want to say that they wanted to just have the bands that they liked and were friends with, and they've added hardcore and whatever whatever made sense, whatever a festival does. And then they were working on one in 2004, and that they were having the same problems, which I know I've run into, where it, it's hard to find a headlining band. And then... With every festival success, the bands and the agents come back digging deeper into the pockets. And so they had planned to do this in 2004, but said it was harder to find headliners. And again, everybody was asking for more money because there was more money out there from the Warp Tour. There was more money in than usually from the 1990s into now. And as an independent tour booker and as a festival booker, that's one of the hardest things to go up against is the fact that somewhere out there is more money from something with big sponsors, something with paid backing. And I'm going to get into that in a little bit. But Crazy Fest came first in Kentucky. And then later on, uh, Life and Death Brigade, they started doing this after they had the gateway to the Midwest or some. I, I, don't, I can't recall which was which. But currently, Colin Feeney, who is from Long Island, moved to Louisville and is now 
the mayor of Louisville, Kentucky Hardcore, and he did the last LDB, and he kicked a lot of ass on it, and I think it's going to be a good thing that'll continue because of Colin and his connections, and who knows, maybe it'll get to be crazy fest size at some point, though I will say that the best thing a hardcore fest could do would be to figure out a comfortable spot they could do the fest for a lot of years and stick to it. We did that with the Starlight Ballroom and probably different times I wished it was still around and not something that isn't even a concert place anymore. I probably would have went back. However, our relationship with formerly the Electric Factory and currently Franklin Musical is pretty solid. So it looks like we will be back in 2023 there. But it's always good to play with the numbers that you are most comfortable with. Even if your fest is blowing up. Got a couple years where people are really about it. And people go, ugh, I've been to that a lot. I'm going to try this new one out. I'm going to try this new fest out. But why I bring this shit up is because the one of the things that threw me off with the Kentucky Irate Fest was that they said um, something like First Core Fest in Kentucky. Which just shows no respect to the lineage and the fact that you know, the initial record guys have been doing that shit 20 years before they thought of it and had major success. And, you know, that's another thing that happens with this pro core. It goes back to this internet, even my joke about the pink hair. So many people now doing things in the now have no cognizance of what was, who was, who did this, when did it happen? And it's the same thing that I say about the band camp stuff. The Bandcamp stuff, the, you know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was these blog spots, which were really fantastic for articles and interviews. A lot of good interviews still exist. In fact, Tim McMahon had one of the best ones, double-crossed WordPress, and all those interviews are still up. Absolutely fantastic. But you could get so many of these um, compressed files, the dot rares, with these records, all these old records that were really hard to find or really expensive to buy on vinyl became immediately available. And it was a great way for younger people on the Bridge Nine board and the internet in general to download something safe and not destroy the family computer with the the other file sharing bullshit. But what happened is people became instant internet. You know, I know everything because I downloaded 10 gigabytes of old 1980s punk and hardcore, so I know more than you because you play in a band called Shattered Realm and you guys are thugs. And it's always this with empirical data but no lived experience do these people act this way on social media. And there has to be something to be said about it. Like, You could download every single record that ever existed in hardcore, but unless you understood the concept and the entire... 3D, the, the lived experience of these people, which is why I always tell everybody on the show to listen and read some of these books. All these books, for the most part, are written from a first-person experience. And occasionally you'll hear stories from a hearsay, but the most important ones are usually first-person. First and there's amazing, amazing um, catalogs of the touch-and-go, the... Um, Fuck, I'm losing my thought here. Oh, in effect. And, you know, there's these um, just great zines that are available that they're really just all the zine issues. And so you're reading content from the 1980s. You're reading content from the early 90s that is compiled 
to give you a better that time perspective. Because over time, things change. Things that I really would have fawned off, fawned over, and went crazy for in the late '90s, early 2000s. I go, ah, yeah, I was 20. I was really excited about this. I don't think I would be as excited now. But it's those kind of perspectives that add color, and color and perspective is necessary. To get a full understanding of a band. Um, there, there's a lot of people that try to categorize and micro-genreize hardcore. Such as why kids start calling things beatdown. Like it's its own thing. Nothing is its own thing. It's pretty simple. It's like fucking punk rock. Hardcore. Oi. Ska. And then anything that doesn't really fit in that. They add core as a suffix. Both bands have current radio hits and played second stages of major festivals this year. Not arena shows, but they should be good enough right now to fill up a club. Who knows? But, you know, it's just like with the death metal stuff. You know what death metal is. Some people may even make the very terrible mistake of calling something death metal grindcore. And, you know, watch your ass if you're around some fucking motherfuckers and you start calling something black metal grindcore or death metal Woo, you're going to have a problem on your hands because the metal people take their different genres very seriously. But I've never been great with the core suffix, and I say this all the time. But I think it's important to understand why that thing needs to be said. It's because a lot of these fucking bands have no core in them. This whole buy-in thing. It's one of the things that is getting shitting on about this Kentucky Fest. You know, there's all these bands now heralded. Oh, this band built themselves up. They were tirelessly. It's like, yo, you ain't no fucking Ben Franklin. They didn't build no fucking bus with their fucking bare hands. They got with the management company. The management company had the acumen to do what was called then a buy-in. And they would buy their way onto a tour. And I've heard various different reasons and various different ways that the buy-in happens. So... I'm going to read you something that I clipped from an article because I think it's a better perspective because you're going, what the fuck is Joe talking about? So I'm planning a couple week tour for my band next summer and I have a few different opportunities. I figured I'd put it to the forum and see what you guys think. I have the opportunity to buy into a tour with a national act on a club tour. The buy-in is 1200 which we would make back in our cut of the advance over the length of tour. The upfront money isn't really the issue. Stop. We would need to sell quite a bit of merch to cover the cost of gas, lodging, etc. And there's no guarantee of that. The tour could end up costing us quite a bit. The other option is we do it DIY. Contact some local bands, get on whatever shows we can get, wherever we can, and try to piece a tour together. The problem with this is a lack of guaranteed advance of an audience. We've basically done this for the last three years, all up and down the East Coast, and we're all to very hit or miss. At our age, the no buzz it, sleep where you can, live in the van, and root is not an option. I did it 18 and loved it. Don't think the other guys in the band would go for it. We're obviously not the book our own headliner tour stage yet. The best way to get a crowd with national acts or headliners. So, what do you guys have to say? Well, maybe your shit sucks. Or maybe you're not playing the right shows. Or maybe even though you did it at 18, you weren't doing it the right way. But I do have a problem with it. It's hard to do it on your own. But I digress. Now I'm going to get into some of the replies, which just shows you 
the mindsets. Well, a buy-in could be a great thing for an up-and-coming band. And you got to remember, it also helps the headliner as well. So the system is good, in my opinion. Now, this kind of goes on that way in the forum where people give their opinion based upon, well, you're spending money, so you have to make the money back, and it'll be hard, especially if you're unknown, yada, yada, yada. But then my man starts spitting some real facts where he basically says it's not a good idea or well thought, and ultimately, unless you have success down the line, that really is cause for the bigger picture for it to all work out. So it's either calamity or you end up succeeding. And I hate to say this, but that's a lot. A lot of this shit works in the real uppity pro core world that we touched on a couple episodes ago. Now, here's some background on this thought. I was thinking about this reading the last couple of days, and I started writing down ideas. I like write serial killer ideas and put post-its all over my fucking station. So as I'm commenting and going back and forth, it's still kind of free flow, but I have concepts and ideas. But I did do a bunch of Googling early on just because from my perspective I said it would have without these other ideas that I'm reading to you now it would have been like it's fucking dumb don't fucking do it you're a fucking loser and it's stupid but I wanted to like look around there are so many YouTubes on how to buy onto a tour and then there is an entire book 100 answers to the 50 questions on the music business by Moses Avalon. And there are tons of articles that you could go to to read on. But this one thing that I'm going to get to just to give you some idea of some metrics. All right. Um, I'm going to read this. This comes from, I don't want to get the source wrong. How do I get both on an amazing tour and what should it cost? Written by Moses Avalon. And then... Major labels generally give a new act seventy-five thousand to one hundred and fifty thousand, what they call deficit tour support. So then, here is the tell-all book by him, which is the book I just mentioned, which I'm going to buy and check out. But it just gives you an insight to the real world of music and why this filters down into the dregs of society known as the underground. Artists are branded tours like the Warp Tour, are capable of packing large venues at a very small minority industry as a whole. They have many opening act suitors and therefore bargain accordingly. Buy-ins are measured in the thousands, often tens of thousands, which makes Sunset Trip Club owners who mandate you buy $200 worth of tickets to your own show seem benevolent. It's not mere gatekeeping fee. You're paying to ensure you're getting solid match for your music with a top act whose audience will yield high potential for conversion. That means new people who haven't heard you yet but will be a fan after hearing you. Does this all sound contrived? Grocery stores get fees from vendors whose products are displayed in their weekly ads, such as toothpaste next to soap. You think candy is always on the bottom shelf, but there's no room at the top. No, it's because children can reach there. Candy companies pay markets to ensure their products do not end up next to the toothpaste. You want music fans to sample your candy? You put it where it needs to be reached. Think of a national tourum like Prime Shelf Space and the buy-on price for getting high-yield conversions. So how much? To do something like five-day warp tour or carry a one-to-three leg of a national act, both of which I would call a mini tour, a band would need about $80,000. It would break down like this. 50000 buy-on, 8000 crew salary, driver, merch master at arms, often a girlfriend, personal roadie, drum tech, guitar tech, one tour manager. 5000 transportation in a van you already own, 
10,000 lodging. Don't expect more than days in. 7,000. Miscellaneous repairs to gear and Zenonos per diem. Total 80,000. You want exposure? It's not cheap. Naturally, the ways to trim this budget, one client of mine did a three-league tour for 8000 They slept in the van, they cut out the text, they tuned their own instruments, used the house mixer, no monitor mixer, combined the role of driver row manager, and were packaging, and were their own packaging agent. But the results rarely as satisfying. And then they, the, the numbers keep going up. Again, the levels of what this music management stuff and this music business does is that the people who are at the top end they're all big sharks, right? That's the whole deal. They're in the top end. So what happens? They go to a market that's a little more green, a little more fertile, a little bit more ripe for this kind of bullshit. Ipso facto, boom. This is why I don't call those metal bands and then pop bands core. They're not. Straight up Bands that hope that they'll grind it out in the underground and be seen as a dirgy, hardworking DIY punk or metal band gets to the top of the echelon to the stages where they're celebrated like fucking Madonna and Bono. But it's a gimmick. It's a work. It's a show. Their whole plan is to get off the island and get to the mainland. The island is like, fuck this. As soon as we can get out of here, we'll just be able to talk about the hard days of buying onto a tour for, now granted, 80000 or let's, well, we can even truncate it down to, you know, we spent 25000 to get on our first warp tour. That's why all this shit's bullshit. That's why all these people are full of shit. So, but where all this context and, and where this background goes to is that one of the things going on with this Kentucky Irate Fest is that there's tons of opening bands who are dropping, 32 of them or something like this. And that's probably because that it comes down to in the comments and in the background, these bands got asked to play a show and got asked to pay to play. As a festival promoter, I can't tell you the amount of headlining bands that never really promoted this is hardcore. Big fucking shout out to Wayne of Haybreed. If I could give that motherfucker a gold fucking medallion, dude, he did promo for us. He did art interviews. Wayne is OG Hatebreed, and Wayne killed it for this is hardcore. You know why? Because sometimes some of the headliners, yeah, we're happy to play, but they're really not going to go out of their way. Code Orange did. A couple bands really did, but a lot of bands, their algor- I don't want to fuck up my algorithm and just talk about this hardcore. Sorry, guys. Even though we're paying sometimes ten, you know, into the tens of thousands, we don't get that pop. We don't get that. And it's like, yo, I don't have, I've never seen a metric difference spending $500 to $3,000 on internet ads. So I put all that money in the hand flyers and I've seen more people know, go, oh, I never heard of this. And, and so we're in a different thing. But back to what I was saying was the reason why this fest is having issues is that they booked a bunch of bands that they were hoping were excited to play with the top bands. Now, we can go to the top bands. Hey, booking agent, I want to pay your band. We think we're going to have this many people. How much money would we need to spend to go ahead and make this festival happen? Hey, it's going to take us this amount of money. Okay, cool. Then they come up with the top budget. I'm going to use a simple number. $100,000 just for the top bands. Because this is going to be, this is supposed to be a big deal, right? Three days, stages, the whole gimmick. Now, mind you, 
it is easier for something like this to get sponsorship, promotion, support, than this is hardcore because the numbers are finite. Our venue went from being 3,000 persons a night to now we're down to 2,500 persons a night. They changed the capacity after COVID, though everybody had a blast and it was a good time. You know, we're not a giant venue. We're not a giant fest. Big for a hardcore show. I didn't grow up going to 2,000 person shows, but not a um, giant festival or a warp tour type thing. So people who love to give away free money, like sponsors, want to hear the number three to 5,000 or 5,000 to 10,000. So it's all a game of getting on the phone, knowing the right people, and having music, business, industry, history with these people to all link up. It's why these bigger things have a better chance of jumping out and succeeding than a DIY thing because the numbers entice people to jump out and jump on board. So they start getting the ball rolling. Yo, we've got this band. We've got that band. We've got this band. We've got that band. And you tell these younger bands, we're going to play with this band? And it goes back to what I said last week. I never in my whole life would I ever think that I could open a show to 50 people when this band is playing. It's like, dude, shut the fuck up. Get in that fucking stage and rock that motherfucker. You're the first fucking band. Get up there and fucking kill it. Who cares who's playing last? You want that last band to go, fuck, that first band killed it. And who cares what their name is? They ain't going to pay attention to you. Stop sucking their dicks. Go out there and kill it. But, but based off of that, that's what a lot of these metal kids want. They worship these people who they think are amazing artists and all this stuff. And as I'm saying right now, a lot of them bought on their first tours. A lot of them bought onto a lot of their stuff. You know, they paid ahead. Back in the metal days, and we've heard this on many single podcasts, Kevin Castle, Rich Hall, many more, the metal scene has crazy situations. You want to play with Cannibal Corpse? Cool. Oh, you, you have to sell 100 tickets at $12. That's $1,200. Now, if you have five bands selling 100 tickets at 12 you have 500 persons technically supposed to come, and you also have six thousand dollars as a promoter to, or five, five times twelve, six thousand, six thousand dollars towards a guarantee on top of whatever comes through the door. Because you know people might buy their friend's band ticket. That doesn't mean they're gonna show up. But that's what happens. Now, as I uh, jokingly always say about Sansugabog and all the death metal bands, they ain't trying to sell tickets, so they're gonna play in hardcore to the point where they're the Cannibal Corpse. But that's that, that's that sidestep. I don't want to do the metal thing that way. I want to do the metal thing this way. Because hardcore and the underground have always been the backstage and the sneaky back way into a bigger audience. And that's why all them shitty new metal bands that kids love and collect t-shirts for hundreds of dollars like Cold Chamber and shit. While they only had hardcore shows to play until they were known. Corn. Deftones, there was nothing for them to play. No metal bands would take them seriously, so they were playing with hardcore bands in the early 90s. That's just facts. They're not a hardcore band. Deftones, yeah, I mean, Surge from Quicksand's in that band, but that don't make them a hardcore band because they played a hardcore show. Again, goes off to other themes we've talked about in previous podcasts. So the thing about the Kentucky Irate thing is that everybody's sitting here on the internet shitting all over these guys, shitting left and right. And it's like, you can't celebrate the people that buy onto tours. You can't celebrate the people that really did no work and got management to do all the work. You can't celebrate all these things and then shit on somebody who 
is just doing what the music business that everybody celebrates the successes for are doing, right? Is that how it works? Like, you can't, you can't be a happy supporter of the entire machine and then shit all over someone when the machine has some faults, right? You know, from the time that Hellfast started, and, and this is a good point to make, the original Hellfest really was something out of this world for as far as hardcore goes. And, um, you know, they now, uh, they now have it in France and the name was bought, but they're, they were called Fury Fest. And then they basically bought the fucking name Hellfest, but the original Hellfest, you know, that shit started small. Small club in Horizon in um, 1997, actually. I think it was even before the Horizon. And what is most known about them, really, I mean, we're going to have Josh on the show, and we're really going to go deep into it. Um, they were always the first weekend of July. And, you know, they just had cool bands. Little by little it grew. And I mean, dude, some of these bands in the first couple years, they were really, they were, I hate to say it, like they were the FYA at that moment. Like they were popping a lot of bands that weren't really getting out there aside of one thing. I mean, Josh Gabriel being Trust Kill and that area um, just was really close to a lot of bands. And little by little, it just started growing bigger and bigger because 97, 98, 99, hardcore really started getting crazier. And by the 2000s, man, it was unreal. They had to go outside. And the same thing, you know, you have to go outside. Tickets go up. Everything goes up. Costs go up. They had two stages. It's, it's, it was fucking, it, it was fucking wild. It was like a full ass original fucking production, so to speak. Right. Goes all the way up until 2004 at New Jersey with Hellfest and Bad Luck 13. And um, again, at this point, people were buying on to playing Hellfest. And people, bands, regular ass bands who would probably ask This Is Hardcore for $500 to $1,000 were good with getting in for free all weekend or getting paid about $150 to play. Only two years later did Hellfest and the hardcore, this hardcore start. And we didn't have no deal like that. <laughs> I wish we had some fucking deals like that. But that's the way it was because everybody would sell. You know, you're playing in front of five to 8,000 people. You're going to sell thousands of dollars worth of merch. So the bands were less concerned about the guarantees. Less agents were involved at that time. Only, agents only represented a smaller piece of the overall band layout, unlike now. So it was easier for Hellfest to do these kind of things. Plus, bands just generally wanted to play in front of a lot of people. That's what festivals are. I can have my band play in front of a lot of people, sell some merch, and I can grow who knows us. Yeah, I'm going to fucking play. That's one of the major importance of these festivals. It wasn't until 2005, and then Hellfest had some problems. They drew, they were trying to grow even further. They jumped on with more corporate things. I mean, I think they even had Public Enemy as the last headliner for the, the show. And... Things fell apart. Tickets were sold. They couldn't get insurance. Tickets were never refunded. And it was in the fallout of Hellfest 
that this article was born because Sean Agnew of R5 Productions, Rich Hall, and a bunch of people took all the shows, they, all the bands they could, and put a bunch of shows on in the Philadelphia area in 2005 when Hellfest fell apart. They did this shit in like 24 hours. Pulled it off some of the wildest shows, and we've seen 108 two separate times in the same day on the Saturday. We've seen Lifetime, 108 together, and that was it. That was like, oh, fuck. Philly could have a fest, and that's why there's a This Is Hardcore podcast, because there was a This Is Hardcore podcast, or This Hardcore Fest since 2006. But let it be known, no one talks shit about Hellfest unless it was, fuck those guys I can't play, or fuck those guys, blah, blah, blah. They were, people were just mad they couldn't play this thing. So they would shit on, I gotta wanna go. Now granted, I'm not really a big fan, as I said last week, about the dust and all that shit. But Hellfest, for what it was, was something special, the same way Crazy Fest was. So, again, had Kentucky Irate Fest... Now, granted, it's supposed to happen next weekend, and it seems like it's it's falling. The wheels are falling off the bus. But this is what happens when you put wheels on, and then these wheels aren't really strong wheels, right? That's the music industry failure. There's some great package tours, and then there's this, these favors that we talk about in these hardcore packages. Well, the one band's friends with this band. The next guy's friends with this. So we decided to hook them all up. Yada, yada, yada. You've got a bunch of bands that are on the tour, not because of the fact that they are specifically um, good or that people will draw, but it's all favoritism. And these fall, these these tours fall apart. I guess all I'm saying is, is that you can't support an industry at the business level, at some of these things are all the time. And then this first time you see weakness, jump on it, you know, like the old wolf and the old animal, and then the pack goes against them, you know? Hellfest was around from 1997 to 2004, and people were dying to get on the fucking thing. Dying to get on the fucking thing. And then 2005, it became the greatest internet joke of all time. Who Where's my Hellfest refund, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's that's the problem with this thing. All this shit can fail. Furnace Fest, it is not said often, but there was a year where Furnace Fest... Now, granted, there's been different people who promote the fest currently than previously did the fest. So I may not be speaking about the current people doing it, but it needs to be said that there was a time when Furnace Fest had some problems and lost upwards of over $100,000. Now, having lost money on shows and having lost money on fests, this is what the business is. But no one jumped all up and down on Furnace Fest and shit all over them. It was quietly amongst the industry, like, hey, you got to pay these bands. You still owe them. I think they had a blackout or not. So there was some other issues. I don't know, recall. But, you know, look at what Furnace Fest is now. They're back. You know, they're, they're a big business industry kind of thing. I don't call them a hardcore fest. Though, it needs to be said... That they were the biggest fest in America that I can think of. I think they had 10,000 people per day last year. I think that's the number that it was quoted at. You know, like, I don't know of any fest that's ever had 10,000 people for shit like Converge and stuff. But they also added, like, a lot of stuff like that Gainesville fest type sound. So, you know, they had a really diverse thing. And, and I mean, that had to, that had to really be a huge part of what made, you know them succeed was the diversity in it and the fact that there's kind of like all these people who are unfortunately my age now that are like oh i'd go see that i've got the money to go see that 
And I mean, initially, Furnace Fest was only around for three years. They came back. They got some fucking some some money behind them, and they had some big people buying, and they made the right moves, and they're a fucking giant thing. You know, but 2000 to 2023, they take 18 years off and it's like, hey, let's bring it back because festivals make money, especially now. America really is starting to come around to the idea of festivals. Live Nation gave Jay-Z like $500 million to be a part of the Philly thing that happens every Labor Day weekend, which makes my traffic insane. You know, like everybody wants a festival because it's what people do. Europe's always had them. And there have been a lot of them focused on punk and hardcore. The Punk and Disorderly Festival um, in Germany has been insane. One of the best oil lineups of all time by Mark M.A.D. Rebellion UK is insane. But I just wanted to say sometimes people on the internet just run their mouths. And they talk some shit about like when someone fails. But I think some of them saying people would be celebrating and jumping up and sucking dick to be a part of it. And you have to understand all this shit to me, goes against the ethos of you write a song, you get on stage, you play your shit. The commercial value of something should not be the reason to get on stage. And I don't think our pioneers and our forebears were. I think the days of hardcore being the antithesis or, you know, the... Remember when... When they when they got Trump in office and everyone's like, well, good thing is, is all the great music that's going to be made. It was like, no, no, no great music was made. There isn't a single anti-Trump song that's like by a punk rock band. In fact, <laughs> I think punk rock got worse under Trump. I think it fucking got worse because the people who are supposed to have the teeth, they can't say the right things anymore. They can't. The same people who would have been. And are like anti-Trumpers. The old, some of the old ones became pro-Trumpers, and then some of the people that would be anti-Trump would say shit that would make the very woke type people upset, and the whole thing fell apart on itself. But it needs to be said that in the beginning, it was just a fuck you music, and then a fuck you music built itself up and built its ways, and you know, I really think for the young people who've not watched. Just give a little bit of a shot to American Hardcore, the movie. And um, in future episodes, in the future, I want to spend the last couple months just really going into history and detail. I've got one point, I got two part twos left to do one with Walter, one with Mike Gitter. And I got a bunch of Philly episodes about the drop. And then we're going to just go a little hard on some of the old days. I want people to have some context of what I'm saying when I start talking about this shit. But the 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 generate the gen the, the the general consensus in hardcore was like a fuck you moment, and they're meeting people who are also like fuck you too. Yeah, fuck you. I say fuck you. Yeah, fuck you. Like you get all excited. Twenty, now thirty, now forty years later, the core suffix is used, and it's a bunch of goofballs from the music business world coming into the underground and predatorily asking bands to pay. Somewhere around a thousand dollars to play some show in Kentucky, sight unseen, not tested, not built up from the ground. Like, hey, let's start this off with two thousand persons. Let's start this off with maybe a thousand people. Me, I know a couple things about festivals. If you're in Los Angeles, New York City, maybe 
maybe Chicago because of Riot Fest and their giant population, the fact that it's a hub for the Midwest, Texas, you know, these uh, obviously the Gainesville Fest in Florida because it's just not just all those bands, but like people will travel because they, I mean, the Beer Olympics in Atlanta were fantastic. A lot of these festivals, it's either centered around a giant scene or the scenes benefit from a giant population spike. New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, giant areas. Uh, Texas, Texas people like to stay in Texas, so they'll travel a little bit, you know. And uh, Austin and those towns really have some insane fests. Austin's basically built to have those kind of multi-venue festivals. And big shout out to Pat, who's now down there kicking some ass again. And he's got some wild shit coming up. But, like, there's reasons why certain places do better. Pacific Northwest, yeah, they have fests, but their fests are not even the size of our big, like our, our medium-sized shows because it's hard to get out there. It's cost a lot to fly. You know, it, there's not many other shows you can play. They're a little bit more, um, I would say, logistically hampered than anything. But if I was doing a show in Kentucky, I wouldn't just assume 3,000 people or whatever they need to break even is. Hopefully, they only need 3,000. Hopefully, they don't need as much, especially with... 30 bands paying a thousand dollars a play but i also think that you should check yourself at the door why am i going to be from hours and hours away and i'm paying a thousand dollars just to play a show to open for someone right there should be now i'm good i don't need this shit and i mean that's really what the whole sensugabog and undeath and all them 200 stab wounds all the the metal kids playing these hardcore shows are doing. They're building their audience organically instead of doing the pay-to-play. Now, when we were in high school, our bands had like these little tickets and we would sell them and that's how we got to play. But I never looked at it as paying to play. I looked at it, we were selling tickets to our friends so our band could play. When you put it that way, it's still the same, but it's done differently. But growing up in metal and death metal in the late 90s here, um... There really is a big difference from, I should say, um, early 90s, you would go to a death metal show and every band had their own flyer and they would try to sell you tickets. But then by the late 90s, Cannibal Corpse and all these bands were at the Trocadero and there was no more, you really didn't need to buy a ticket from one of the opening bands. Occasionally, a band or two might open and they might still have the pay to play, like, hey, this band has to sell a couple tickets. But by that time, I was way into hardcore, and I didn't really know some of the openers of some of the death metal shows. But early on, a lot of the metal shows that we were going to, some local band, Abolish, and you know, Godbox, or you know, there's a bunch of them, you know, that all evil. What was that one band? They're called like Evil God Revival or something. You know, there's a shit ton of bands. Um, Family of Freaks. There's always people in the metal scene in the early '90s in Philly that you could just buy a ticket for something because they were opening. But by the mid to late 90s, when metal was really getting bigger here, or the shows were getting bigger, and the death metal bands were playing to the Trocadero and almost selling it out and shit, you really didn't need to go to the band to buy a ticket, you know? The also thing that sucked about buying tickets was they were like the community chest card stock from like Monopoly. So if you bought that motherfucker, you had to like pin it to your wall so you didn't lose the motherfucker. And I've done that a couple of times where buy a ticket from a band member and then lose it. Like, fuck, I got to get my ticket again. I guess this episode is just talking about how 
There's a lot of bands now, once again, who get, man, this band works so hard. It's like, my man, you guys bought on the Warp Tour. You guys bought on these tours. You bought your way in the door. You rewrote history so you can go ahead and you can say that you had some hard knock life. You can go ahead and say, oh, well, you know, there's still people really like them, man. Like, that's the most important thing is the music is that people like them. It's like, yeah, but what do they work for? They paid for it. And, and you get what you pay for. If your way to being the next big thing is paying $1,000 to open some festival in Kentucky, go for it. But if you're willing to say yes, don't come back and go on the internet and shit all over them later because you're the stupid motherfucker that said yes. All this pro core shit is nonsense. The best festivals built themselves up very small. A lot of them are built upon decades of other things going on. Be mindful. There wasn't like a really big Philadelphia Hardcore Fest here for a long time because we had good shows and we had some big ones. And, you know, there was the Equal Visions record showcase, which was pretty big at the Rotunda. Some big shows that Robbie had a hand uh, with R5 putting together, you know. But like as a whole, it wasn't until the mid-2000s where it felt like we could actually sustain a decent-sized festival, you know. And uh, it takes a long time to build up an organic, real nature thing. So I would say that dunking on a thing that looked stupid in the first place, okay, that's one thing, but there's a million other times where these stupid things just jump off and succeed, not because of interest, but because there's enough money behind the idea. It's kind of like, well, we get in early and we become an early supporter of this festival, you know, blah, 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 because that's the other half, like I said, but the sponsors. People start thinking there's money in there. Well, we give them 5000 this year, and then next year we say, hey, you guys, remember early, we helped you guys out so we can stay a part of this for brand recognition. It's a lot of money shit, and it's not a lot of hardcore shit. So I don't really give a fuck about any of it, but I, I see this shit on the internet. I see people debating and shitting it, and it's like, yo, you know, none of this shit has anything to do with my entire world, but unfortunately this shit leaks into our world all the time. And the more and more I think about it and I think about cool, short little episodes I can do without interviewing people, this is the stuff that I talk about. Um, life is interesting, working a lot of hours. Life has been throwing curveballs and luckily I have friends that check on me and keep my sanity and a lot of good birthdays, a lot of good people, a lot of fucking Leos out there in this damn world. We don't need a lot of them, but there seems to be fucking tons of them that I'm friends with. But um, again... We have a lot of stuff that we do here. TIAC Podcast will give you show notes. Philly 8C Shows will give you um, all the updated shows that we have going on. And FYA Fest goes on sale. If you're listening on Friday, it's going on sale at 12 p.m. Don't miss out. Thank you for supporting the podcast. A lot of really crazy, awesome episodes are in the works. Lots of recordings going on. I want to do them in sets so that way... It's not piecemeal. Once I start getting on this roll with the Philly shit, I'm not going to jump off it for a bunch of weeks. So this might be the last time you're going to hear me just chatter like this. So hope it was fun. If not, hey, it's only been an hour of your time. Thank you for always supporting. 90 episodes in, almost two years at this. And I'm thankful that I have this release and this ability to communicate. And the people that write me every episode with thoughts and ideas really just thank you. Take care.